Well, we have a little um, illustration this morning. <laughs> so Holdo signed up. <clears throat> Got an older brother over here named Sam. And a prodigal, I think your name is Riley. <laughs> so we're going to read a text from Romans 9 through 11 this morning. But first, I thought to help you kind of grab the meaning of this long three chapter, we're not going to read all three, but to help you kind of grab it, I want to do a little illustration about the prodigal son. So you know the story. If you don't, we're going to do a quick review. It's in, the Luke, in Luke chapter 15. Jesus told this story about two brothers, an older brother and a younger brother. <clears throat> and the younger asks his father to give him his inheritance early. So the father gives it to him. Don't spend it all in one place. But he leaves home, goes to a far country, and spends all his money on parties and prostitutes. Soon he's broke. He ends up working for a farmer, feeding pigs. It's a pretty bad life. He gets so hungry that he thinks about eating the pig slop that he's feeding to the pigs, and he thinks about going home, where his father is living well, servants are eating better, living better and cleaner than he is. He decides to go home, and he rehearses his apology to his father. And he says, Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please make me one of your servants. But the father sees him coming from a long distance, which means he's obviously been waiting for this, this event to happen. And he goes running out to meet him. And while the son is trying to apologize, the father is saying, I don't want to hear it. Welcome home. He puts a new clothes on him, new shoes on his feet, a ring on his finger. He tells the servants to prepare the fatted calf for a feast. So they're having this great celebration that the prodigal has come home. He's happy. He's been welcomed back into the fold. He's clean again. The, young, the older brother comes home from the field. It says he's out in the field. He comes in and he sees what's going on and he's not happy about it at all. He refuses to join the party. He's angry about the celebration and this self-indulgent prodigal who's suddenly welcomed back into the family. He says, to his father who's pleading with him to come and join the party, he retorts and says, all these years I've been working for you, living in your house, served you faithfully, I've never disobeyed you, but you never gave me a party to celebrate. And the father says to him, son, you're always with me and everything that I own is yours. It's right for us to celebrate about your younger brother who's been lost and now he's found. He's been dead, but now he's alive. Well, thank you, older brother Sam and younger brother Riley, for you helping us out. Give me my hand, guys. <clears throat> by, by the way, wasn't the worship great this morning with Brother Nick and the team? Thank you, guys. We appreciate you. Now, Pastor Tim Keller observes that these two brothers are both actually lost. The one is lost in his own sin and rebellion, the other is lost in his pride and self-righteousness. And in this parable, Jesus compares these two kinds of people, and Paul does the same in this text that we're about to read in Romans 9 through 11, but Paul, rather than using a parable, he uses some theological explanations that we're going to review. 
So when you hear, as I'm reading, when you hear the word Gentile, that's referring in this case to the prodigal. And when you hear the word Israel or Israelites, that's referring in this scenario to the older brother. So just give you a visual aid. Think of Sam, the older brother, when you hear Israel, and think of Riley when you hear the word Gentiles. So reading, and if you have your Bibles, I'm starting in Romans chapter 9, verse 30. I think it's going to be on the screen too. Uh, is that true? Okay. <clears throat> so we'll go through this fairly quickly. Starting in Romans chapter 9, verse 30, and I'm reading from the New International Version. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, he's quoting from the Old Testament, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they do not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteous, righteousness for everyone who believes. The righteousness that is by faith says... Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on the one who they have not believed in? And how... Can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I ask you again, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. I, again, I ask, did Israel not understand? For Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am also an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. This is God's word. 
So the big idea we're going to talk about today is peace with God, this idea of righteousness by faith. How do we how are we made right with God? How do we have peace with God? How is things made right in the world and in our lives? If it's for everyone, says here, older and younger brothers. So Paul uses two little ways to make his case. First, he quotes extensively from the Old Testament in this text that we just read. The second way he makes this case is by asking rhetorical questions. So let's look at these two areas for a few minutes. He quotes from the Old Testament. Now, why does he quote from the Old Testament? He quotes a lot from the Old Testament in this text. Why did he do this? Well, first of all, the reason he did it is because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. All right? He's writing the New Testament. I don't think Paul necessarily knew that he was doing that in writing the book of Romans, but that would become a part of what we call the canon of Scripture. So Paul is using Scripture that he knew, which is the Old Testament. He was an Old Testament scholar. He was a very, very dedicated Jew and knew the Bible, the Old Testament, that is. And there's a lot of it here. The promise, the thing that's exciting about seeing this is that the promise of righteousness by faith is everywhere in the Old Testament. We often think, oh, that was something newly discovered in the New Testament, but it's everywhere in the Old Testament. <clears throat> Paul quotes from 12 books in these three chapters, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, 1 Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Job, Psalms, Joel, Hosea, and Malachi. 12 books he quotes in these three chapters. He quotes more in these three chapters from the Old Testament than he does in any of his other writings. Twelve times in Romans 9. We only read the very end of Romans 9. Twelve times in chapter 10. Nine times in chapter 11. Paul's thesis was that from the beginning, Genesis, from the very beginning, God planned to bring salvation to the nations. From the very beginning of the fall of Adam and Eve, through a simple response of faith in him. That was always God's intent. Abraham was the first step in that. And Abraham, we'll talk about him in a minute. But through the years, the descendants of Abraham lost sight of this simplicity and got caught up in other things. Second Paul, we'll get to that. Second Paul, second, Paul asked a bunch of rhetorical questions. Now, what's a rhetorical question? I think of The Simpsons. I don't know if you ever saw that episode, but it's hilarious. <clears throat> Dad, do you even know what a rhetorical question is? Why do I know what a rhetorical question is? <laughs> so here's a, here's a form. A rhetorical question makes an obvious point by asking a question. It's, it's like this. There's a wife, her husband's outside doing something, and she sticks her head out the screen door and sees her hu husband 20 feet up an extension ladder, He's leaning out off the extension ladder, holding on to the ladder with one hand, and with the other hand, he has a chainsaw, and he's trying to cut a limb of a tree on the chainsaw. And the wife says to him, are you trying to kill yourself? That is a rhetorical question. Paul uses rhetorical questions brilliantly in these chapters. Let's review quickly. Romans 9, 6. We didn't read this text, but he asks this question, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? Referring, of course, to God's promise to Abraham and his seed. The answer is no. For not all, Paul writes, 
are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring, his physical offspring. But, quote, through the promise of Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he quotes Genesis 21. Romans 10, he asks questions. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Four rhetorical questions. Verse 18 of chapter 10, he says, have they not heard? And the answer, of course, he answers. He said, indeed, they have. The heavens, he quotes Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In other words, the entire creation of God has been declaring God's truth since the very beginning. They heard. They heard. Verse 19, did Israel not understand? He says, yes, they did. He quotes Deuteronomy 32, where God's saying, they have made me jealous with what, with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. So he's saying, they made me jealous. I'm going to make them jealous by loving up on the prodigal. Huh? That's what he says. And God's grace was so abundant, this is what Paul's saying, that he had plenty left over for the prodigal sons too. And that made the older brother very jealous. He asks in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, has God rejected his people? He answers, by no means. He tells his own story. I, I'm an Israelite. And Paul, if you know his story, he was a persecutor of the church. He hated the church. He sought to destroy the church before he was radically converted. He refers to Elijah the prophet during a very low season, a very low time in, the, in Israel's history. He refers to Elijah, and Elijah felt like there's nobody left that believes in God. Everybody are idol worshipers. They've all gone after Baal and the foreign gods. And even Elijah discovered God spoke to him and said, no, there is a remnant that still believe. Paul said that God even saved me, a Jewish persecutor of the church, and even in Israel's lowest moments in history, there were still some who believed. <clears throat> Verse 11 of chapter 11, Paul said, did Israel stumble so badly that they could never get up again? He said, certainly not. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, and mean if Israel forsook God and the Lord took the gospel to the Gentiles, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? In other words, the Jewish rejection of Jesus, think about this, fast forward to the New Testament times, the Jewish rejection of Jesus, the Jewish caused execution, it was, he was executed by the Romans, but it was really the impetus came from the Jewish leadership, the Jewish execution of Jesus opened the door for the Gentiles to hear the message. This was the way God fulfilled his promise to Abraham that said to him, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So this course now asks the big question, if peace of God, peace with God is offered to everyone, how do we get it? What's the means by which we get this peace with God? How, are we made right with God by our own efforts, by living right? Or 
Are we made right with God because of what Jesus did for us? Is salvation attained by keeping the law, by human effort, doing our best to live to a certain standard that God requires, or by casting our faith completely in what Jesus did for us on the cross? This is really the essence of what Paul is getting to, and all what I just shared with before in summarizing was his building up to this point. The obvious answer that Paul makes is Jesus Christ is the way we are saved. It's through God's grace and our faith response to what Christ did for us. But oddly enough, this was not obvious to the Jews. Even in that time of Jesus, it was not obvious. They didn't get the message. Even Jewish believers later, after Christ died, resurrected, ascended into heaven, the church grappled with this question. Even Jewish believers were not sure of whether this was really the way. So Paul had to do some explaining. You have to remember, God put a huge effort through history to reveal this plan. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, God was on a mission to bring reconciliation. It's not hidden, it's there in the Old Testament. A lot of human failure was also in the Old Testament, but this was God's mission. God gave Abraham huge promises. He said, I will make you a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Of course, now he said this to Abraham when he was 99 years old, and his wife was 90, and they'd never had children. She was unable to have children, and he says to them, I will give you a son in your old age. And Abraham's response to him was he believed God. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 15 that God accounted that faith to make him righteous. So that was a precursor. That was a pre-shadowing of what was to come. 2,000 years passed, and Abraham's exemplary faith was finally revealed in its fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. During those years, the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, were supposed to be stewarding this promise given to Abraham, but like most of us, they didn't do a really good job of it. <laughs> huh? Have you stewarded God's calling on your life perfectly? Have you walked it out perfectly? None of us have. We all walk with a limp. We all kind of are a little lame in it. We have to go back to Jesus every day and make apologies for, wow, boy, I messed that one up. Sometimes the Jews were the same. They walk with God, and other times they abandoned him. A lot of the times they acted like the older brother. Rather than being an example of God's hope and promise, they just thought they were better than everyone else. They thought the idea of being God's chosen people meant God just liked us better than anyone else. And they didn't realize God chose you to carry a message. That's why you're chosen. I'm sending you to the supermarket to buy groceries. That's why you're chosen. You're not chosen because I like you better than everyone else. I got a job for you to do. <clears throat> it's vital understand, to understand this point. Abraham's descendants were not the bloodline, but the faith outlook or the faith response in God's promise. So many Jews through the years, and I'm not picking on the Jewish people. Please don't hear that. I'm just talking about this history. 
So many of these Jews had gotten so lost in the weeds of privilege and legalism about keeping the law that when Jesus arrived, he came as a big surprise. Like the older brother, they got jealous. Jesus was too popular. He, he, was, he got too much attention, especially by, yeah, you know, prodigals. He hung out with sinners. He was friends with them. He didn't keep the Sabbath. So he was kind of like an ew guy, you know. He's not our Messiah. They, they missed it. They thought that salvation required serious effort, and Jesus was turning Almighty God into a friend of sinners and publicans. Way too casual. <clears throat> well, the Jews were not wrong about one thing. Salvation is serious business. In fact, it's so serious that it's unattainable. The standard is so high that we can't get it on our own. In that sense, the law did what God intended it to do. When God gave the law, he gave it, made it so high that it became impossible for anyone to ever succeed in obeying it perfectly. So what was the purpose of the law? It was to, as Paul says in another, another book, he says it was our school teacher to teach us and bring us to Christ. It set out an out-of-reach standard that showed us how inadequate we are, and that made us look for a Savior. But I can tell you from human nature, and you would all, be, you would all know this if you're honest with yourself about yourself, inadequacy is a hard lesson to learn. None of us want to admit that we're inadequate. The early church grappled with this issue, issue, this issue of salvation by law or salvation by grace and faith for about 15 years after Jesus died and went to heaven. Some said, believing in Jesus is good, but you still have to keep the law. Particularly, you have to be circumcised. Others insisted, nah, Jesus is enough. In AD 50 which was about 15 years after Christ's death and resurrection and ascension, the church leaders got together in Jerusalem. We now call this gathering the Jerusalem Council. Sounds really scary and serious. It's just a bunch of guys getting together probably around a table in a small room. Church wasn't that big, you know, in those days, not compared to this now. It was, it was big enough, but they got together and they gathered around this one question. How do we have peace with God? How are we made righteous? Is it by keeping the Old Testament law plus believing in Jesus? Or is Jesus enough? And to their credit, they came to the agreement and came to their recognition. Paul was there. Peter was there. James, the Lord's brother, was there. He was the pastor of the Jerusalem church, and he was there and a bunch of others, some agreeing, some disagreeing. And they came to an agreement that righteousness comes by faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Nothing more. Period. This is in A.D. 50. But still took some time to sink in. Five years after that, in about A.D. 20, Paul had to write a letter to the church in Galatia, and here's what he wrote in chapter 2 of Galatians. He said, We who are Jews by birth are not sinners like the Gentiles. Yet we know 
that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Jesus Christ so that we may be right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Paul's writing that to the church in Galatia. Two years later, he had to write another letter, this time to Rome, the church in Rome, which is what we're reading right now, to emphasize this point to another body of believers in the city of Rome. So what does this all mean for us today? Faith and law and what, you know, it's hard for us as outsiders, as Gentiles, don't have this huge and rich background in the Jewish culture and the history of God's dealing with these people over many, many, you know, hundreds, decades, I mean, decades, centuries, a few thousand years. It's hard for us to see the difference between the forgiven prodigal and the judgmental older brother. We kind of just get this idea that salvation is by faith through grace. The one goes to church and just enjoys Jesus. This is what, where it gets a little bit personal for us. Some of us, we go to church and we just enjoy Jesus. There's some others of us that come to church and we sit around and kind of criticize and are scowling about these things aren't being done right. And I don't like the way they're singing and I don't think I believe with that doctrine and we have all kinds of reasons why we scowl. I remember back in the early 2000s, I went to Costa Rica to, on a surf trip and I met a young uh, Costa Rican Christian leader named Pano Rojas. Many of you know Pano. And Pano had been a wild surfer, you know, he'd smoked weed and he'd have parties and he and his buddies from high school, all they wanted to do was surf waves and hang out. And so they had this whole, you know, look, long hair, board shorts, flip-flops, surfer swagger. You know, I know we got some of that here and they love Jesus too, so I'm not picking on that, all right? <laughs> but that was their MO. Well, that did not fit when Pano and his buddies got saved and went to church. And again, I'm not picking on the church in Costa Rica, but the church they went to <laughs> in that time, one of the leaders took them aside and said, you know, if you want to come back to church, you need to cut your hair and you need to put on proper clothes, which means long trousers and a white shirt and a tie and proper shoes because flip-flops flip ain't going to fly in this church, bro. Basically, there was no room in Jesus' church for long hair and board shorts and things like cool and rad and far out and whatever other Spanish lingo these guys were saying to describe things they liked, including Jesus, you know, and the scowling older brother was like, Jesus is not far out, okay? <clears throat> Jesus was holy and demanded respect. He was not rad or cool. So to get in with, good with Jesus, you had to clean up and walk right. So Pando decided to start a surf church. He planted a surf church. They started on Friday nights at the beginning so they would not get in trouble with some of the established churches in the area that met on Sundays, and Sundays was very sacred, and so meeting any other time of the week was not sacred. So yeah, you can have your funny little meeting if you want to. So they had a Friday night church, and board shorts and slippers or flip-flops and long hair and a whiff of saltiness was actually the dress code. You couldn't come if you were wearing trousers and a white shirt and tie. Not really. Today, Casa Vida Church in Tamarindo is a thriving body of believers on the shores of the Pacific Ocean where board shirts and long hair are the norm. 
I'm glad Pano Rojas planted a surf church. I'm glad to be a part of a surf church here in Pensacola, Florida. Aren't you, huh? Isn't it great to be a part of a church like this? But we must remember something. All of us can be inclined toward becoming an older brother. It's not that long a trip down the aisle. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 11. Again, we didn't read this text for time, but he talks about these two branches of an olive tree, the natural branch and the one that was grafted in. And he says, some of the natural branches have been broken off and you, a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. In other words, we all can become like this in time if we're not careful. At my age, I get the older brother type. You know, I get it. I'm not 20 anymore. I gave my life to Christ when I was 50 years ago, actually. 50 years ago in August of 1973. So 50 years and two months. I was an 18-year-old trouble seeker, so now you can do the math if you're mathematicians to figure out how old I am. I was sliding down a scary slope into a very dark abyss, knew I was in trouble. I had people that had come to Christ before me. My parents were Christians and were following Jesus. So I had people rallying around me, praying for me, like the father in the prodigal son story, waiting for this radical prodigal to come home. I remember the transformation when Christ touched my life and I was radically converted and fell in love with Jesus and still struggled with sin and insecurities about my faith and temptations and also joy. I still have all that stuff going on. If I'm really honest, I'm a little bit more settled now. I like the steady life, you know. I'm happily married to one woman for 47 years. It's, it's nice. <clears throat> I've kind of grown up and become more mature. <laughs> It's easy to fall into the older brother trap, though, I can tell you that. You learn a lot through the years. It's easy to think that you know more than you do. I mean, I had that problem when I was 20. Don't kid myself. You start feeling entitled, you know, especially when things aren't going your way. I've served a long time here. You know, I've done this right. And you start discovering that there's this fine line between the wisdom you gain from experience and just becoming a smart aleck and cynical, self-righteous. Missiologist Donald McGavern, who I studied under at seminary, he, he calls this syndrome the older brother syndrome. He calls it redemption and lift. Now, redemption is good. You know, that's when you find Jesus and your sins are forgiven. He's new and fresh and good. And lift is what happens afterwards. So redemption is always good, but lift is this thing like, I used to live with pigs, and now I live in a better place, and I'm making more money, and I got stable relationships, and I don't have debt anymore. I'm actually paying my bills, and I'm driving a nicer car. And all those guys I used to hang out with back when I, before I knew Jesus, and even afterwards, I hung out with them and told them what happened to me, and some of them were really curious, and other was of we're like, you're weird, man. You're a religious freak. Get away from us. Now I look at all those guys and they look like a bunch of losers. So we become an older brother because we become sort of entitled and arrogant 
But here's the thing, and I want to wrap up with this. God loves prodigals, but he loves older brothers too. Paul says this over and over. In all one, every one of these chapters, the opening verses of each of these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, I'm going to read 9. I think we have time. I'll read all three of them. They're not long. Here's what he says in Romans 9, 1 to 5. He said, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Here's, and then he goes through this litany, this amazing litany of their history that's so rich, and all of us Gentiles are beneficiaries of this rich history. It's not the way by what we are saved, but it's a wealthy history. He says, they, theirs is the adoption to sonship, meaning that they became chosen by God. Theirs is the divine glory. The Old Testament word for that is Shekinah, the actual visible presence of God in the temple. They actually could see it. Theirs is the divine glory. Theirs is the covenants. Theirs is the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. The stuff we read to this day, the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, meaning Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their ancestry, and from them trace the human ancestry of who? The Messiah. He says, brothers, and, and, this, and then he says this in chapter 10, verse 1, he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And Romans 11, 1, he says, I ask then, as God, has God rejected his people? Again, a rhetorical question. By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of, Jesus, of, of Benjamin. So here at Upper Room, even probably today, if you're honest, some of us are prodigals and some of us are older brothers and some of us, probably a lot of us older folks, especially Kenny. <laughs> I'm just picking on you, bro. We're small, I'm sure if I can get away with that. We're a little bit, a mixture of both. We're in love with Jesus, but, you know, we got that going on too. We're grateful for the prodigals who come home. We're grateful for the older brothers who maintain the house. Our brokenness is obvious every day, but God's plan goes forward. And here is something that's amazing in these chapters that I'll just touch on briefly, but God's plan, God's plan is so important that the Bible, not just Paul, but the Bible, including Paul in this text, speaks of it in terms of these very complicated and religious words called election and predestination, meaning God planned it way in advance, not only for the big picture, but individuals' involvement in it, he planned it. We don't understand predestination. We, we in some ways, feel... You know, it's like Forrest Gump said, Mom, what is my destiny? We all have this sense of wanting to know that our lives have meaning beyond the choices that we make. Somehow that God is guiding our life. Paul speaks of these things in those terms. He said, God chose people like Abraham and the Israelites. He elected people like you and me, imperfect, broken, 
saved by grace to advance his plan and his message to the world. God predestined us to take his plans to the nations, a plan that was bought and paid for by Jesus on the cross, embraced by us by faith in him and his work, and now carried forward by who? Prodigals and older brothers under the watchful and loving eye of a sovereign God, our Father. We can hardly comprehend it. I've listened to sermons. I've listened to messages. I've taken courses in graduate school trying to understand predestination, and none of us quite get it. In fact, Paul even talks it about it's like a mystery. Who can know the mind of the Lord? Here's what he says in wrapping up. Paul writes this in the very end of Romans chapter 11. He says, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, Paul writes. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. If we get this right, this idea of righteousness by the finished work of Christ and our trust in him, it will be a fountainhead of true happiness in your life. It will be the force that helps you overcome sin. It will be the source of all that empowers you to walk with God and obey him. It will make obedience a joyful thing, not tedium, to attain something that's unattainable. Because we did attain it, not by our efforts, but by the gift of God given to us by faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're just so grateful for the insights you gave the Apostle Paul in writing these texts and the amazing incomprehensible reality and yet a mystery to us try to understand it all with our minds but yet at the same time our minds can't quite fathom it but yet our hearts have experienced your intimacy that you drew near to us you draw drew us to yourself you revealed what Christ did for us and what that meant for us Lord Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for coming near. Thank you for drawing us. Thank you for loving us, caring about us. If there's anyone here today and you say, I have no idea what you're talking about, bro. I want to just encourage you to just surrender to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I don't get it completely, but I would, I'm hungry for what you guys have. Whatever it is that you have, I'm hungry for it. That's where it all starts. It's just this surrender, this openness. Say, I can't do this on my own. I can't even understand it on my own. But I surrender to the trustworthiness of God himself and what he did for me in Christ. Lord, we thank you for that today. Thank you so much, Lord, for giving us peace. And thank you for uh, words that come from the Bible that help us in some small ways understand all that you did for us. And we pray that all in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen. <laughs>